I recently read some statistics that were pretty shocking to me. Did you know that over 36 million people have died of AIDS-related illnesses in the world? About 35,000 people get diagnosed with HIV in the U.S. every year, and currently there's about 1.2 million people living with it in the U.S. right now. Pretty shocking. I guess I'm negative, so I haven't dealt directly with this, but when I was in Seattle, married the men's minister in a church, I had three men in my groups, and eventually all three of them died of AIDS. There was Mike, who was just a perky, handsome young guy who, you know, we hung out right kind of at the end. We were in a little group and I didn't get to know him real well. But I remember when he died, his family, who were quite wealthy, wanted nothing to do with him. They, there was no memorial. There was no nothing. They just, he like banished. Eric was probably the one I was closest to, and I I watched as he went downhill at the end, and that was pretty devastating for me to just watch it. And then there was Mike Dillon. I didn't know him real well, but I remember when he died, I sat down and penned a poem that I actually sent to his family, and they put it in his memorial. And I want to read it to you. For Mike Dillon, I did not know you, Michael, and yet I mourn your passing. You have touched me because you have been an expression and an example of mercy and kindness. We sat around the table the other night, your friends and I. They remembered you with tears and joy. I watched and listened as each one spoke. They told me how you had touched them, the smiles, the laughter, the love of life, and the flow of kindness channeled through you to those alone and in need. They spoke of change and marveled how God had touched you and made you new inside. With tears, they acknowledge the pain in your life. I did not know you, Michael, and yet, hearing about you and seeing how you touched those who knew you, the curtain of my reality has been torn away. I am reminded once again of the truth. All that we build with our hands will soon be gone and forgotten. But you have been faithful. You have reminded us that to touch someone, to demonstrate love and kindness, will alone live on. Thank you for sharing yourself with me through all those you loved and touched. I wrote that in November 1993. Death, you know, we look we look at it and it seems so obtuse to us. We, we just don't get it. I mean, we look at these shootings at schools or at a supermarket, people just going about their daily lives and someone comes in with a gun and their lives are snuffed out. The light of each of those people snuffed out. Consider the poem that I just read to you. I didn't really know Mike Dillon that well, and yet hearing the stories about him and how he affected all these other people touched me at some level deep inside that I can't even describe. And that's the sad part, is all of these lives are gone. COVID, the whole mess with that, all these people gone. Today we're going to listen to a different side of the story of HIV. The gentleman that I'm gonna be talking with today has survived HIV for 40 years. He's a long-term survivor. Give a listen. Good afternoon, Wilkinson here. Today my guest is Michael Sartori. He's originally from Germany and he's been in the States about what, 28 years? 28 years, yes. Okay, so say hi, Michael. Hi, my name is Michael Sartori. And what are we gonna talk about today? We're talking about the long-term survivor of AIDS. I am a 40-year survivor. 40 of, years, yes. whoa. So that's before 
really before the meds came the out. early stages, so yes. So you truly are a survivor. Yes. Okay, so let's hear some of your story. Tell us some of it. Well, I came to the United States on an internship uh, for hospitality, and uh, I came... I was, in, I was exposed to the HIV virus here and then went back to Switzerland and was one of the first people that were being uh, um, tested at the university hospital. And they said, I'm positive. And it wasn't called HIV at the time. It said, had a different name. And um, they said, oh, you have six to 12 months to live. You need to get your papers in order. Wow. So this would have been, what, 1982? Two, yes. Okay. So things were just starting to ramp up in the U.S. at that point. Correct. All over the world, essentially, was, was right. this problem. Okay. So how did you take that news? You know, I actually had a very interesting reaction. Um, I got the phone call at my job. I had a brand new job uh, that I started that day. And uh, because there was no internet, no cell phones, no nothing in the 80s, um, they had to call me at my, at my workplace to tell me the results of the test. And uh, phone rings and my boss said, oh, there's a call for you. And take it in my office. And uh, I went to the office and... Their hospital at the phone and I said, yeah, you tested positive and uh, you need to come back because you need to talk to the doctor because, you know, you have limited time left. They said that like that yep. to you on, on the, the phone. phone. Yeah, it was. Well, hopefully they got better training after that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's is, is, essentially those were the early days where they really didn't have a protocol or anything about that. And uh, I hung up the phone, changed my face again, did like a, you know, like in, in hospitality, it's like being on a stage. You just change your face and move on and go out to, uh, to work. And uh, it was very surreal. And I actually coped by ignoring I completely okay, so ignored you were, it. what, 20 years old at yes, that point? Yes, I was okay. 20. All right, so you went back to work, and then you went in to the clinic or the hospital? Yeah, to the hospital, yeah. And, and then they told me, yeah, you have 6 to 12 months to live. You need to get your papers together. Really, that sounds... I mean, more cold than... <laughs> it's, it was... Do you think it's because it was what it was? Because, I mean, if someone had cancer or some other terminal disease, certainly they, they wouldn't be that cold. Or is it just that they're very stoic? Now, which country? You said that's in Switzerland, this is in Switzerland, right? yes. I was born in Germany, but I was raised okay. in Switzerland, right. yes. So, is that normal for them to tell people... I mean, obviously, it wasn't true when they gave you this pronouncement. Do you think it was normal for them to treat people like that? Well, I think so, because I heard it from others. I've heard from others the same uh, script that they heard. You know, oh, yeah, you only have six or 12 months to live. You get to get your papers together. And that's kind of, uh, yeah. Wow. So, like, they tell you that and then, okay, goodbye, next. Next. That's, well, that's... no, I did see the doctor and then he said, well, there's not very much we can do. And at the time, I don't even think AZT was available, but that's what the first drugs that they gave us. But you, so at that point, were they even saying it was HIV? I'm confused here. It was called HTLV, HTLV-4, I believe. But they knew that it typically would be killing people. Yes, they knew okay. it was terminal. Okay. And um, yeah, so I just went back to work and I, my, my weapon to fight it was essentially ignoring it. And how long did you ignore it? I ignored it for a long time because um, I couldn't tell anyone. I didn't tell anyone at all. The only person that knew was the professor at the university hospital and myself and my family doctor, but nobody else. And f I kept that a so secret. Did, did you have family or friends there at that time? I had my, uh, my dad. I was living with my dad in southern Switzerland in the Italian part, and I didn't tell him at all. He didn't even know that I was gay. So you never told him? I never told him. And he actually was thinking that I was coming back from America with a girlfriend or something, but that was oh annoying. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Uh, no, no Dad, not, not true. Not true. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I, until I came to the United States in 1996, oh, 1994, sorry, later on, that's when I started coming out as being a, a person living with HIV. So it was pretty much a miracle that you actually lasted all those years then. 
miracle. So 12, 12 years and you weren't doing anything about it. Correct. There was nothing to do, honestly. There was no other option other than taking the AZT and, and some of the medications because the protease inhibitors didn't come until 1996. So two years me being into the United States, that's when I finally was able to um, take um, medication that we are familiar with today. Right. So during that time, what were you thinking? Yeah. You, you said you, you literally were able to put it out of your mind? I comp am very good at compartmentalizing. And uh, I compartmentalized it. Of course, it always popped up occasionally. It became a challenge when you were dating someone and re revealing that. And, and that was always a challenge. So um, did you tell anybody you were dating? I was telling some... I, yes, I told people that I was dating because I felt like it was my obligation to do. Right. And uh, um, I'm thankful that they kept it to themselves. But it always was something... It was always a... Uh, um, an obstacle in, in, a, in a relationship. So I actually focused on my work. I became okay. very successful in my job. And that is attributable to the fact that I w had, didn't have that many distractions. I literally worked all the time. Do you think that the fact that you weren't dwelling on it help you survive? Absolutely. Just by not dwelling on the negative of that. Because there was nothing I could do. I, right. I, I literally realized, you know, there's nothing you can do. You just need to just live with it and let the chips fall where they may. I mean, you know, you hear from so many people live for today, don't live in the past, don't live in the future, don't worry about the future. And that sounds like a little bit of that. You were doing that back then. It's easier said than done, but yes, right. that's certainly how, how I, I felt. And then, but then when I, when it progressed later on, I came to the United States and I actually came here to f in search for a cure. Uh, I, yes, certainly professionally I came here also, but uh, my main idea was to come to a big city, Washington, D.C., New York, uh, L.A. or San Francisco, where the specialists in this field would be. And uh, I felt that that was my only solution was to be there where the, medic where the medical services are to help people like me. And so the fact that you thought about that and came here for that reason means that you were starting to think about it then? Yes, that of course. I okay. mean, towards, towards the... I had other factors family issues that, that uh, caused me to then decide to leave uh, Switzerland because I was disowned by my dad when he found out. He found, so out, I was he gay. found out you were gay? And ultimately, he found out that I was gay. Yeah. How did that happen? Just as an aside here. Coincidentally, <laughs> coincidentally uh, I, I, very coincidentally, I had a picture of a, of a guy that I was dating in Zurich in my wallet and I opened my wallet and it fell out. And he's like, who's that? That's how it kind of started. So what did you tell him? Uh, that I was seeing this person. I was, I, I can't lie. I'm a very oh, bad liar. So you were, you realized you were coming out to him at that point. I was coming out to him. And uh, uh, the next day he uh, summoned me and uh, my stepmother told me, I had, hey, you know, this, he's going to tell you stuff and uh, don't be, don't be alarmed. So he just essentially disowned me the next day. Said oh, he, and, your, I, and your stepmother said, don't be alarmed. At don't that. be alarmed. Yeah. She didn't think it would go <laughs> that far. Yeah. She didn't think it would go that far. So, yeah. So. I just uh, decided to myself then, you know what, I, what am I going to do here? Um, there's no reason for me to stay here. So I decided to uh, move to United States. And did you have further contact with them after that? Well, my dad died a while back. So no, I actually didn't really contact. I didn't really connect with him at all anymore because uh, he was so um, adamant about not having me in his life that I just decided, you know, it's sad. It's sad because uh, we could have had a great time together, I think. How did you feel about him before he did that to you? What, what actually, was the relationship? I loved my dad. I thought he was he was a great guy, and and he was you know he, he was an SKP from East Germany when Russia invaded Germany, and I can see a lot of stories he told me. And his, he's a very he's a history buff, and so am I now, and so I learned a lot from him. And 
I felt, you know, my parents divorced when I was 12, so I really lived with my dad. He got custody. And so I lived with him as a bachelor, or in a bachelor the, pad, if you want to call it that right. way. So we had always a great time. And, you know, we ran hotels and restaurants and stuff. And so I was always working at home anyway. So it's, it, we were always together. And then I felt really, I was really sad when, when that happened, the separation. But I had to move on. And you said he was in the hotel business? Yes. It seems like on our first conversation a few weeks ago, you were talking about going to a different location. Is that, am I mixing your stories up here? Or? No, I was in. I was in. Uh, well, I did my chef's apprenticeship in Davos, Switzerland. So I left home at age seventeen. Okay. And went to Davos, Switzerland, and became a chef's apprentice, for, which takes three years. And this was the first time I was away from home. And. Mm. Uh, I then went to Zurich to work in Zurich, and but then I went to the United States, did my internship, and that's when I came back, and then I was uh, tested positive. And did you, am I imagining that, or did you work at a separate business of his? Or separate I, business afterwards, yes. Okay, so he sent you there. Well, I found my own job. Okay, yeah. all right, so it, had, it wasn't one of his businesses. No, no, no. Our business okay. was in southern Switzerland, and this was in eastern Switzerland. All right, I was, I was, was crossing one. The general manager was a friend of his, so I did get a little bit of an in to get that apprenticeship position. Okay, so was there anything else momentous that happened during those that interim when you found out and, and you, you came not, to the U.S.? Not really. I mean, the one thing that, that happened before I came to the United States, I became general manager of a, of a leading hotel in, in Switzerland. And I remember very vividly that we had a sister hotel. This is from another company. Um, okay. We had a sister hotel that had a general manager that had just died of AIDS. Mm. And I was so shocked when I heard that because I knew I was HIV positive, but my boss didn't know. My boss told me that this guy in this other location um, had died of AIDS. And it it was it was really shocking for me because, you know, I hear I'm thinking, oh, gosh, now he's going to have another one that's going to die of AIDS. How is he going to feel about that? Right. So that might have snapped you into thinking about it instead of what you said earlier and not thinking about Correct. it. Correct. Yeah. Towards the end, I definitely Do you think that was a turning it. point? Yes. Okay. The, the, the five years that I worked uh, as a GM in, in that leading hotel, I definitely had a turning point where I decided I need to go find a cure. Okay. I need to go and change my life, and I need to just be in a different in a different environment. So you packed up and went to, came to the U.S. Yes, I went to New York first. Actually, yes. I was going to say which where'd you land? Yes. So in New York City. Mm -hmm. Okay, how long did you stay there? Actually, I was there. I was in Long Island and in Great Neck for one year. One I, year. I helped open a hotel there, and then uh, my boss transferred me to Los Angeles, and I was uh, in charge of uh, relaunching a hotel there as well. Okay, and so how long were you in LA? Twenty five years working <laughs> for that company, or did you move around? No, I moved around, but then I then I did get sick. I did have uh, HIV encephalopathy, which is uh, where you start losing memory. That was very uh, uh, shocking for me because I it, essentially the disease started eating at me, and uh, that's when I then got in touch with a uh, um, with the psychiatrist who was specialized in researching this um, this disease and how to stop this disease. And uh, uh, thanks to him and thanks to the, the research that he was making, I was able to halt the progression of HIV in my brain. Did he give you some, were they experimenting with drugs or, or what? Yes, they were experimenting with drugs, actually existing drugs that they added to the regimen of HIV, okay. which then allowed the blood-brain barrier to be uh, penetrated and then HIV medication would stop the progression of HIV. Okay, and you were how old at that point? 34. So 34. And then at one point, were you taking enough meds, the new meds, is, I mean, obviously they've changed over the years, where you felt comfortable and that, okay, I can survive with this? 
Uh, probably, I want to say about 10 years. 10 years into yeah. it? 10 years into it, so 19, uh, 1996, 2006, 2008, so I felt more comfortable that, you know, this is going to be a, a chronic disease or, or manageable disease, like they were, they were calling okay. it. Still, it was always very scary because you did see people die left and right, you know, still your friends okay. and, and so, so that, that's what I, that was actually what i was going to get to so you switzerland you heard about the other manager that died and mm -hmm. that kind of freaked you out and pushed you on your way to, yes. to new york so did you have a lot of friends in new york and la gay friends um i had a relatively good friends not a few but good friends okay I, and did I, they were they hiv positive some of them were yes and, and did they survive and they survived they did yes i wasn't expecting that answer. yes they all did <laughs> they all did and I, I, well, i'm great thankful for that yes yes i'm still in touch with many of them today so they're long-term survivors as well we are actually quite a large group surprisingly huh. i thought i was one of the few Survivor. I didn't know that there were so many long-term survivors until I really researched a little bit more. And I found out that there's this group in San Francisco that is specifically for long-term survivors. And they even have a, they even have a Palm Springs subsidiary. Oh, really? What, what's the name of that group? It's called uh, Let's Kick Ass. Let's Kick Ass. Okay. Uh, ASS means uh, AIDS uh, Survivor Syndrome. You know, surviving is, is, is also a problem. You know, being, surviving a disease like this, you know, does a lot of things with your mind. Right. You start thinking about, you know, people you lost, people that, uh, you know, didn't make it. And uh, you have survival guilt and certain things like that. But you said your friends all made it. So you were in touch with people who didn't make it at some point then. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't mean, know some, but, but I wasn't, I wasn't too close. I wasn't Not, as they close weren't in your them. close, close group. Correct. Yes. Okay. But you did see them Die. Yes. How did that affect you? It was scary because it kind of every time you had someone, it felt like you're losing, you're losing some, you're losing someone, and then a piece of me would like, oh, right, you're getting closer. Yeah, yeah. inching closer to the. Yeah, I, used to, uh, I thought about that. I mean, when you're a kid, you know, you've got your father, your grandfather, and then your grandfather dies, and then your father dies, and like you're heading to the precipice yourself. <laughs> so yeah. kind of probably a little bit like that. Sadly, I'm, I'm it's repeating now. It's, yeah. it's, it's repeating now because now we all are in our 60s mm -hmm. and even the long-term survivors, you know, I mean, we've been, we've been taking meds since they exist. And so you never know how your body reacts to so many years of, of medication, your liver, uh, there's many things. And we now actually die of, of regular diseases that everybody else has, but we die. And so this whole cycle of people dying around you is resuming now. And it that, is. that's kind of sad. But this is the real one. This is the real die death, right, you know? Right, not from that. So what's some more of your stories? You're in L.A. Mm -hmm. Any significant happenings there? Well, I'm very thankful that I met uh, this, this professor uh, who now is a, has a chair in the University of Tennessee. And he, uh, he's, he figured this out, how to stop the progression of HIV. So I'm very thankful for that. And, uh, I, you know, because when I started having um, memory loss, it, it actually was manifesting itself at work. I had staff members who were taking advantage of the fact that they realized that I would forget things. And then my boss, my boss in, in, in Washington would then, he would say, hey, Michael, somebody told me that you would never say something like that. And I said, no, yeah, but you know, so essentially there was this, 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 this tension within the company that people mm -hmm. were taking advantage of my fact. And then he told me that, go, why don't you go check it out? He was a very understanding boss that I had. And uh, yeah, so I had it checked out and sure enough, I was losing my mind, so to speak. Okay. 
Yeah. And so was there progression on that? Or, I mean, what, what is it restored your memory and stuff like that? Or? It, sto- it, it stopped after uh, Professor the f- Professor Goodkin found the the solution for the okay. uh, stopping of the uh, progression of HIV. It stopped. And so uh, I'm hopeful that it never continues. So you would think, well, one would think possibly that with HIV, that the younger guys wouldn't be getting it, although that doesn't seem to be the case. What do you think about all that? Yeah, sadly, it's not the case. And, and uh, you know, what I find very sad is that today there are people who just uh, trivialize it and they don't realize how, how invasive it is in your body and in your mind. Yeah, uh, so a lot of younger guys would say, oh, you, you can just take something and you'll be fine if, if it happens. Right, no big deal. Once, once uh, Magic Johnson came out on the and, you know when it came out that magic johnson he was having hiv and then he survived 10 years then everybody said well you know if he survives then we can survive too and we just take right. a pill and it's fine it's not always that easy what so, have been some of the struggles for you the last say the last 10 years well certainly financially uh, it's not so easy to get uh, jobs that you that will take 100 percent of your time uh, so you work part-time then i'm now on disability from uh, from my swiss social security disability so i have limited uh, abilities of, of making a money and the cost of living continues but your income stays pretty much the same so it's uh, it becomes very challenging so you have disability because of the hiv yes when i was diagnosed hiv encephalopathy they essentially didn't even ask me too any questions i immediately qualified because at the time it was known that that was one of the two ways that people with aids hiv would die it's either either you'd had kaposi sarcoma or any skin cancers or you ended up uh, having uh, encephalopathy and then lose your memory and that was very sad because i had a couple of friends in switzerland who died that way and so i knew what was coming coming my way so it was very sad do they put I mean, maybe you don't know the answer to this, but do they put guys on disability today over there in Switzerland? I don't or think have they changed the kind of the change the tune? The protocol has certainly changed. And I think it has changed here in the United States, too, because it is a manageable disease, quote unquote. OK, so uh, in Switzerland, I'm sure it's handled the same way. The, the, the laws are pretty similar um, here and there. At the time in Switzerland, it was much more liberal in uh, assigning uh, social security disability no matter if I live in the United States or elsewhere, because they, they had an agreement between, there's an agreement between Switzerland and the United States on social security disability. So you, now, you won't get social security here yet. Can you get both? Uh, no, you can't because because of this bilateral agreement, okay. essentially what happens is they calculate how much money did you pay into which system. And if you right. paid the majority of your contributions to Swiss system, you get the benefits from Switzerland. If and you paid you the been here 20 something years working. Yeah, but right? I had not, I had not, uh, I'd, I'd stopped working uh, full time. Uh, oh. probably 97 so okay yeah so you're going to keep continue the swiss then correct which okay. it, it's for a while was much better than this than what you were getting here but now it has harmonized it's pretty much similar now at the beginning the first years i was making almost double than what you were getting here in the united states wow yeah well that's pretty good what would you have people to know right now if you had if you were on a podcast in your situation, what's the thing that you would like to say? Is there something, or not w- to put you on the spot? But <laughs> no, no, I would say, I would say, look, live life, live life at your, in your fullest. It's a very cliche, right? I mean, right. live life at its fullest and enjoy every day because you never know what happens the next. And it's you know, you may not die of HIV/AIDS, but you might die some being run over by a bus. And yeah. uh, uh, I had that philosophy early on and focused on my on something that would keep me distracted, and which was my work at the time. Hmm. And uh, I think that that's what helped me cope with it and survive so you never know if you're going to be shot at a school or a 
supermarket here though so sad it's very sad very sad all right well any final thoughts just guys keep on keep on fighting and uh, uh, we have to remember that the long-term survivors are those that are forgotten we we are a group as i said this, this group of long-term survivors here in palm springs we're about 300 people wow and, that and many yeah yeah wow quite a large group and uh, um, we feel like we're being forgotten we have uh, people don't know that we exist and so we need to let that let that be known a little bit more Well, this maybe will help a little bit. I think so, it will. What else could you do? <laughs> what else? That's right. <laughs> Always putting you on the spot, right? No, no. That's kind of what it is. You know, let be out. I don't want to be hidden anymore. I want to make sure that people know that I'm HIV positive, that I'm a long-term survivor, and I will never hide it anymore because I feel that being out and being clear about what your situation is is much better than hiding from it because that and that educates people. And when I do meet people and tell them about it, the very many, many people are very surprised. They don't know that there's right. people that survived HIV so long you know well I'm, I'm sure some of the younger gay guys this will be an interesting story I think so too and they can hear the details on it I think well, so too I appreciate you coming in my pleasure thank you very much thank you so much